0: Hello and welcome to our podcast, Gurus at Dawn. My name is Alisa and I'm here with my co-host, Ren. Hello. And today we're going to be going into the second part of our deep dive into George M. Fredrickson's take on white supremacy. The main topic that we're going to be discussing is interracial couples and their children, specifically in the Cape of Good Hope and in the North American colonies, which later turns into
1: the United States. George M. Fredrickson, as well as other people in the field, think that the treatment of interracial children can be very indicative and reveal a lot about how certain societies deal with race, particularly slaveholding societies. And of course, what we're going to be seeing in the North American colonies and the Dutch colonies are going to be treated much differently, which is why they're outstanding to compare to one another, because they don't necessarily fit in with other categorized Western societies. Now, Fredrickson actually references a man named E. B. Reuter, who has taken the time in his own studies to set up what he believes to be the three different caste systems held by Western societies typically at that time. And he will refer to interracial children as half-castes. And these three different ways that he has laid out can be summed up in the following. The first one is that they are just a lower segment of the dominant caste. The second one would be members of the exploited caste, In the third, they would be treated somewhere in the middle and be given and granted an intermediate third class where they were somewhere in between those. Both the North American colonies and the Cape of Good Hope colony will be able to be put in those three categories off and on, but it shifts throughout and it's important to understand the complexity of each of them.
0: Interestingly enough, the Dutch had a particular way of treating their mixed offspring in all of their colonies, and it wasn't something that was exclusive to the Cape of good hope
1: yeah in fact in the west indies where they had many colonies some leaders and governors would actually encourage intermarriage to a certain degree to the local peoples there was a slight caveat that if you did get married to an indigenous person of the area or someone in the slave population you wouldn't be able to move back to the netherlands area because of course there is racial prudeness going on but there was a legal ability to get married and again slightly encouraged we'll get into why it was encouraged a little bit later on the offspring of these interracial marriages did legally have some rights to them that were outside of being a slave in fact in 1842 there was a law that was passed in the dutch colonies in the the netherlands that recognized them as official dutch citizens with all of the rights that a dutch would have and by 1850 interracial children actually accounted for over half of the classified europeans
0: and what's really interesting is that these Mixed offspring were actually able to hold offices in the Dutch government. And this wasn't something that was just a theory. It was something that actually happened in practice. And this is important because that means that they were trusted to make big picture decisions for the nation and the colony and to represent the people in that
1: area. And of course, this is coming from a legal standpoint. Socially, it can be assumed that there were a lot of people who pushed back on this or perhaps didn't want to see so many people of mixed heritage holding positions however legally they had the right to do so and occasionally did but that will set the scene for what we're going to see in the cape a little bit let's go ahead and switch gears to the north american colonies And you may have guessed it because if you've heard part one, North American colonies and the Cape of Good Hope treat interracial couples differently because we did foreshadow that last week. But we see very early on that there are very strict guidelines that are set about interracial marriage. And there are some colonies that really do a good job of illustrating that best. Let's kick things off with Maryland. In 1664, the Maryland Assembly said that having a baby with a slave would doom a woman to a life of slavery as well as their children adversely for white men who were caught in this same situation most of the time they would be punished through church so Frederickson actually does a good job at laying out a couple different incidents that happen what they're going to illustrate is that as long as a man goes to church asks God and his church members for forgiveness most of the time that's all he has to do but he does have to pay penance through church moving forward a couple years in 1691 Virginia made a law banning interracial marriage altogether so now it was not just something that you would be punished socially for or through church for. Now Virginia is saying that it is illegal and you would be banished from the colony altogether. Maryland is going to follow suit one year later, and then they are followed by a couple more colonies until six out of thirteen of the colonies now have rules against interracial marriage. Being notably excluded from that, however, is the only southern state that did not take part in that, which would be South Carolina. Later on, that will reveal a lot more about why these laws were so strict. So we will be revisiting that. It was also strange because the states of Massachusetts and Pennsylvania will actually be part of the group that does ban them, which is strange because they are not Southern states. Again, that will come into play later. But you see, it's not just the laws that are interesting. It's actually the language within the laws that make it clear that there's actually something else going on underneath the surface and a more deeply rooted issue. Without fail, all of these laws are specifically targeted towards white women not having relationships with black
0: men. And on page 99, we can see a quote that really exemplifies this mindset that they, they had of controlling white women. It says... The responsibilities of paternity are easily evaded, but women who have children out of leadlock, especially by lower class males, are subject to ostracism or worse because neither they nor their offspring have any place in the kinship or inheritance structure of their own group.
1: Yeah, and that's really apparent because what we just talked about before in the Maryland assembly, they made it clear that the white women who were participating in this would pay dearly through their social standings and their children's social standings. Such targeted laws towards white women really indicate that they are going to be one of the main offenders in this. Now, when I say a main offenders, that works on two different levels. They perhaps participated in it a lot, but also the fact that they were participating on any level was portrayed as offensive to some degree. Fredrickson is very careful that what we're about to talk about is more of an as assumption rather than something that can be factually backed up with physical proof. Though there are some things and some uncovered files that indicate this to be correct, he wants it very clear and we as well want to be very transparent that this is more of an assumed social structure at the time. Some of the reasons why it can be assumed that white women and black men were participating in interracial marriage more frequently than files might suggest is that one thing that isn't going to be recorded is people who decide to live together outside the constraints of official marriage. If you're from the South, you might have heard the term living in sin. Also because of the social shame that was often attached to such interracial marriages, a lot of these files may have been, and I'm using air quotes here, lost over time. That being said, historians have actually uncovered lots of the interracial couples at this time were actually in fact between white women and black men, though the actual extent of this is not known. The natural question you might have next is why are white women and black men participating at such a high rate in interracial marriage? Well, during this particular transitional period for the North American colonies, lots of single English women were coming over to serve as their main servant household staff. These women by far and large are going to be coming from lower class backgrounds. And in England at the time, lower class, both men and women are not going to have the same prejudice that we see in upper class English people at the time. So the idea of marrying somebody who is of a different race is not going to upset them to the same degree it might if they were of high status. Also, to some degree, the slave owners kind of liked this. Not every single slave owner, but a lot of slave owners will take advantage of the idea of their servant women folk and their servant men folk making babies for them cheaply. Also, the slave owners probably found it easier to have them live in one place and not have to keep up financially more than one living situation. However, one thing the state did not like is when white women who were free married black men.
0: Yes, and we can see Fredrickson point out that Lingual language on page 103. It says, references in the laws to the pairing of white women and black men as a shameful action leading to the disgrace not only of the English but also of many other Christian nations and to the propagation of an abominable mix and spurious issue imply a deeper and less calculated kind of anxiety.
1: And just in case you don't know what the word spurious meant, like I didn't, uh, it means fake or false. So they make references to this abominable mixture. But also another huge thing is white women were in very short supply in the colonies at this time. Overwhelmingly so, the white population is going to be men coming over to establish the colonies. And quite frankly, white men are used to being in charge to some degree, if not overwhelmingly so, of women's sexuality or their sexual lives. And also, Englishmen are used to having a very predominant role in picking out the future spouses for the women in their life. This type of attitude is very conducive to a highly puritanical society, which was overwhelmingly the type of mindset we're going to be seeing in the early colonists. Now, going into a little bit more depth about puritanical views, another thing that's very conducive to that is an uncomfiness surrounding the idea of sex. Because of such a frigid view around sex and sexuality, there was often a perpetuation of the myth surrounding African sexuality. They were seen as exotic and often oversexualized in the eyes of English people. Now, this myth is going to bring up a lot of insecurities for white men at the time. These myths, as well as other well-held societal implications, led to white men holding a lot of sexual anxiety. So they often compared themselves to the perceived physical prowess of black men. Additionally, Englishmen tended to paint English women in a very lustful light, which added to their desire to control their sexual prowess, as well as a fear that black men would play into their lustful desires. This deeply rooted fear tended to rear its ugly little head in a form that was taken out on the children of these interracial couples. Not only did they hold a bias against these children because of their heritage, they also didn't really have a use for a mulatto class in early north american colonies while in other colonies like in the west indies their half-castes were often used to police their slave population they would give the half-caste just enough rights for them to feel separate from the slave population therefore instilling a desire to uphold a sense of order amongst the slave population Whereas in the North American colonies, there were enough poor white men to carry out the job of policing their slave population themselves. Also, and by doing so, this helps instill a sense of white kinship between the poor white class and the upper class.
0: Yes, and this is illustrated on page 107. It says... In the South, the caste principle certified that all whites were members of an exclusive and privileged community by virtue of their racial origin, thus establishing a foundation for solidarity in defense of slavery, an institution that brought economical and political privilege to the planters, but which in its racial aspects could also be a source of social prestige for non-slave owners. And so this is just a reiteration of what we mentioned in the previous episode where poor white people are being made to feel closer to rich white people
1: also another reason why they didn't really like the mulatto class was because a lot of upper officials believed that there was a secret conspiracy to bring down english rule by the slave and mulatto class That particular fear is actually held by somebody known as Governor Gooch, which I think is how you say it. It's spelled G-O-O-C-H. I'm not sure, but (laughs) something close to Gooch. Governor Gooch, which was the governor of Virginia. He had a lot of really problematic thoughts. That's just one of them. So it's clear that this race line meant a lot for the white men in charge at the time, because it helped them establish not only the fact that Being white was superior to being black, but it also helped them use women to police interracial mixing.
0: White men saw white women deviating from their own race as a threat to their position of dominance of power. A term that Fredrickson uses is permanent stranger, and that means that black people were othered and considered strange or wild. One thing that that does is it makes it easy to attach negative social notions to that group of people. This wasn't something that would change even if you assimilated to the dominant religion or if you adopted aspects of the dominant culture. It's a form of cultural redlining that creates a permanent us versus them mentality.
1: So it's pretty clear that these policies that are targeted towards white women are not meant to completely put a stop to interracial marriages. They're actually being used to control interracial marriage in a way that is appreciated and easily navigated for a white slave-owning man. Just like we mentioned in our last podcast, white men were having children with black women at a consistent rate throughout this time. This is because while white women would effectively lose their rights and their children would never be given rights, white men never had to claim their children in the first place because the black women who were having their children never were able to legitimize their children through the father.
0: While we can understandably assume that these laws are targeting white women because of the language that they've been using. It becomes increasingly clear when we actually look at the places that did not have these laws.
1: Namely, to bring it back up, South Carolina. South Carolina did not have any laws prohibiting interracial marriages like their other southern counterparts would have, and this is very revealing because South Carolina never had a sizable enough servant white woman class. So they never had the issue of white women intermingling with black men. The amount of white men taking up relations with black women was the same rate throughout any other colony. They just never had the presence of white women being with black men, which speaks volumes about the type of insecurities they were facing with these interracial marriages. So moving back to the Dutch and particularly the colony of the Cape of Good Hope. If you remember from before, we established that the Dutch often would encourage interracial marriage and coupling on a certain level throughout all their colonies. This is something very indicative of the life at the Cape because even the earliest governors would use words suggesting that mixing with the slave population might actually be smart because it might better suit the children for that type of climate. And that's pretty gross on its own, but especially when you add in the second thought that they would have, which is that it's okay because after a few generations you won't even be able to tell that they're not full dutch this is also due to the fact that they're again like in the north american colonies there's a severe lack of white women to have children with and as we established in the last podcast and we had briefly touched on in the beginning of this one these children that were half dutch were given at least partial dutch status In fact, a pretty notable person of mixed background would be Simon Vonderstil, who was a prominent governor from 1679 to 1699 in the Cape.
0: These relationships they're having in the Cape should not be romanticized. They were just a way to quickly build a workforce for the Cape. And the book very succinctly illustrates that point. On page 110, it says... It was essentially a pragmatic device to establish hegemony over indigenous peoples adopted as a matter of necessity by a colonizing nation whose home source of manpower and especially woman power were too limited to meet the need for a loyal and reliable European population in its eastern colonies.
1: Yeah, they were in effect using these women who were not white as vessels to hold their children until they could get back to their white women pretty gross, so definitely not romanticizable. And similar to what we see in the North American colonies, there's not going to be a ton of super well-kept records about these marriages taking place. Not particularly for the same reasons of shame attached to the North American colonies, but definitely because a lot of them preferred to just live with these slave women or non-white women because they were often used as a placeholder until the men would return back home to the Netherlands. Also, another reason why the extent of this interracial coupling was not necessarily known to its fullest is because several women who are already half Dutch who are entering in these interracial relationships are unknown because they were only known by their father's Dutch name. Also, another reason why these relationships definitely should not be romanticized is that they were steeped with racial bias. For instance, most of these interracial marriages taking place are going to be with Dutch men and slave women or imported women of Asian descent as opposed to women of African descent. And as previously suggested, their main goal was to essentially breed out the non-white blood from their offspring because after several generations, it became less apparent that there was any mixing to begin with. This desire for interracial whitening to do its work is definitely seen within the type of marriages that happen for the children of interracial couples. Half-white girls would very often be married to a white man, whereas the boys of these interracial couples would not be marrying white women unless they were very pale in complexion and owned land. So, it was definitely, again, to benefit the white man and the sense that it was providing wives for them to breed with
0: and jumping off from that idea you mentioned earlier of the lighter skinned men being more likely to be able to marry a white woman this idea is very comparable to white passing in america which to sum up what white passing means it's the concept that someone's skin color and features are close enough to white people to where you cannot immediately tell that they have any other heritage so in the United States, it was very improper and rude if you questioned if someone was black. So that did not happen very often.
1: Which is real ironic considering how many people like to take part in black fishing and cultural appropriation. But anyway, that's a different podcast. Now, very interestingly, bringing up the idea of white passing led to a lot of very strict laws being passed about what constituted a person's blackness? For instance, most states pass something close to the lines of having the 14th rule or the 18th rule, meaning, very simply, if you had this much African heritage, that meant you were seen by law to be black. However, one state in particular that did not do that is South Carolina, and they were particularly problematic with their policy. Their policy was a merit-based policy, meaning that if you were revered high enough within society, you were good enough to pass as white, which directly ties an idea and notion to your race somehow reflecting your goodness. So what we're seeing in both of these places is a way to police race, only on a different level. For the North American colonies, we're seeing them wanting to make sure the interracial relationships do not lead to the mixed class getting enough rights for them to pose a threat to the dominating white class. And for the cape, it's used more of an upward mobility that will lead to a whitening of the mixed children.
0: Which is interesting when you consider this quote on page 99 that says in a caste society, the enforcers of the system not only limit upward mobility by denying those of low birth access to high status professions and occupations, but must also bar social advancement through intermarriage. Which really showcases that in the North American colonies, they really want to squash any notion that the lower class or black people can have any form of upward mobility they wanted to squash that in every form that it could possibly take
1: place so past the initial days of the cape white people are going to start wanting more clear race lines enforced we see a lot of social discrimination happening towards mixed people and families Even if a person came from a legitimate background and their parents had been married, a lot of times they would still face social disdain if they found themselves in a leadership position or an upper position of any sort, if it was clear they had something referred to as heathen descent. This led to a lot of families trying to hide their mixed heritage. They would often act ashamed or deny any roots concerning a heathen descent. In fact, it became a symbol of status for a family to be perceived as only white. By the 1820s, now that the colony was pretty much established, the only interracial marriages we're going to see after this point are mainly going to be between lower class white men and non-white women.
0: The shame or dismissive manner that they're having towards mixed kids at this time is still nothing compared to what we're seeing in the North American colonies over a century ago.
1: And speaking of North American colonies, a deep sense of family structure and community was well established, especially in the American South. Because of these strong familial ties, it allowed a shame-based culture to establish itself within the idea of interracial marriage. Nobody would want to deviate from the strict family structure that they had because it would link their entire family to disgrace. And I don't know if you remember, but at the very beginning of this podcast, we had referenced that northern states like Massachusetts and Pennsylvania had these strict interracial marriage laws as well. Though the laws were more symbolic in those places because they didn't have a large black population at any point, the symbol was deeply rooted within the society because both of them were highly puritanical and strict. They also very much feared anything that was outside of the norm. They wanted overwhelming communal conformity. There is a desire of wanting to maintain the English culture that they came from. And if they weren't wanting to maintain the English culture, they were definitely wanting to improve upon it and they thought they could do so by instilling very strict sameness and homogeny amongst their peoples, namely making things like interracial marriages taboo or illegal.
0: And this strictness of culture isn't shared by the Cape colonies. If you remember in the first podcast, the Cape colonies began as nothing more than a rest stop, while the North American colonies were several orderly colonies.
1: Lots of the men who were initially going to the Cape had a much more free-spirited idea than the people who were colonizing in North America. They saw it as an opportunity to relieve themselves of the orderliness they found in European society. I know we mentioned briefly last week that the Cape of Good Hope was eventually taken over by the British and you might wonder how race lines and interracial couples started being handled after that. Well, at first they were slightly strengthened. The British came to this colony and kind of thought, hmm, you know, there's not a lot of order going on, a little bit chaotic, let's kind of clean things up, polish things up. And the laws that they end up changing don't really affect those who have already been, I guess, maybe the term is grandfathered into their rights, so this didn't necessarily affect the people who had already been accepted to a degree by society, but it definitely did affect those who came after them. And something to keep in mind, Fredrickson does note that it is very ironic because in a few years time, when the British decide that they will change their policies to be more inviting to the idea of equality amongst race, the Dutch are actually going to push back on that in the Cape of Good Hope and they're not going to like that policy change. So it's strange because this whole time there's been a notion that the Dutch might be seen as more progressive when it came to race. Lines than north american colonies but really it's all circumstantial and that's proven when later on they really push back on those policies now going back to the united states between the time that the constitution was first written to the time of the civil war these laws are only strengthening both societally and legally
0: we can see this because instead of only punishing people for having these interracial relationships they also denounced any interracial marriages that were previously legal as null and void.
1: A few Northeastern states will end up repealing these laws, or they'll join the Union without ever adding them in the first place. And they really only did this out of social pressure, because these Northeastern states wanted to be seen with approval by England. So they were very much following the trend with England and other Western countries at that time. But that being said, the southern states in particular became even more color conscious during this time. Not only were the marriage laws strengthening, but their rules about who was white under law and who wasn't were strengthening. In fact, it got to the point where most states were using the idea of the one drop rule, which I don't know if you're familiar with that at all. But basically, the one drop rule was the idea that if you had any traceable African heritage, you were seen under law as a slave. It got so bad that by the year 1930, 29 out of 48 states had banned interracial marriage altogether, while the rest of the states did not partake in interracial marriage out of social pressure from their family. It's also important to note that at this time, most leaders that are going to be popping up in the black communities are going to be mulattoes. This is because they are overwhelmingly going to be coming from higher status to begin with. Most of them were born to already freed parents and may even have a little bit more financial wealth as well. But white supremacists are going to use this to further deepen the race line by claiming the reason why mulattoes are in charge is because of their white heritage and blood.
0: And bringing it back to someone we mentioned earlier, lieutenant governor gooch of virginia in 1723 he said something that is very indicative of this ideology and how pervasive it was in society on page 105 it says As most of them are the bastards of some of the worst of our imported servants and convicts, it seems and now impolitic, as well for discouraging that kind of copulation as to preserve a decent distinction between them and their betters, to leave this mark on them until time and education has changed the indication of their spurious extraction and made some alteration in their morals. This ideology that having any amount of Black heritage made you this immoral social outcast was so pervasive that it also invaded the Black community. It was internalized and began to run rampant. Many of the leaders of the Black community were respected because they had some form of white heritage or because they were light skin, and this was reflected not only in the civil rights movement, but also in current times.
1: Yeah, and it's unfortunate. A lot of the times I feel like the black community has to find martyrs that are palatable to white people by choosing leaders who are light-skinned. And it's so funny. (laughs) We're going to wrap it up there, but just one little thing at the very end. I want to mention that if the words weren't so big in that last quote by Governor Gooch, I would have thought somebody else had said that. But the words are a little bit too big, so I don't think it's in their vocabulary. They're huge. The (laughs) words are huge. All right. That is a stopping point for today. We are going to go ahead and take a break. Get some tea. We will be back in a second. All right, y'all, we are back. And today I am having Organic Kimon, which is a really yummy black tea from China with a tiny little hint of ginger in it. And I'm having
0: another Tassan. This one is lemon ginger with probiotics. It's very good. It's good for your throat. So, Elisa, who's your artist for this week? I'm so glad you asked. I am going to be recommending Sammy Copley. He is 19, based in Ireland. And he actually got famous off of YouTube. He's a very good activist. The song I'm going to be recommending is called Good Lie. And in the music video, there are clips of different protests from around the world, which is really cool. Who's your artist this week?
1: My artist's name is Corinne Grace, which I really like that name. It's so cool. I love it. She is also an activist. Something that I really love about this particular artist is that she doesn't limit herself to one scope of music. She actually does a wide range of different types of genres, which is really cool. She is currently based in Norfolk, Virginia, and her most recent release was in 2019 called "Love Sick." It was a single, but my favorite song by her is actually from the EP... Called The ID and the Ego, and the song itself is called Ego. It's a really fun mold bop. An uplifting thing that happened recently in the news is that AOC got reelected. Yes. I was so happy. I was watching her Twitter like constantly to see if she'd get reelected. She was posting throughout the evening, and I was like, oh my gosh, please, please, please. And I was so excited yeah. when I got the notification. <laughs> and so, Elisa, uh, who's our activist for this week?
0: Our activist for this week is Sabrina Fulton, who announced this week that she's qualified to run for public office in Florida. She's running for the Miami-Dade County Commissioner for District 1. And you may know her name because she is the mother of the late Trayvon Martin. And so this is really great because not only is she standing up for justice for her family and for her child, but also for all of us and to do her part to make sure that
1: there is racial justice. And so we really want to shout that out. Yes. Also important news to be aware of. Don't forget, peaceful protests are still happening around the country every single day. Just because they aren't on your feet anymore doesn't mean that it isn't happening. And it's definitely important that if you can't participate in them personally, make sure that you are helping keep them safe and promoting the events as much as you can. Yes,
0: and it's really important that we keep an eye on these protests because in addition to being met with police violence, they're also being met with civilian violence. And we can't socially allow it to be swept under the rug that people find it okay to be this outwardly violent.
1: Yeah, and I think that's where we're going to leave it off this week. Thank you so much for
0: listening. And next week, please look forward to the conclusion of our dive into George M. Fredrickson's take on white supremacy.
1: Bye.